0: superheroes, but there has never been anything like the fists of fury. Every limb of his body is a lethal weapon against an army of men, the most sensual of women. Savage beasts. <laughs> Karate. And Kung Fu. The explosive combination that gives you the biggest... <laughs>
1: Fists of fury. Good day and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Master the 40. I'm Kirk Kernott. I'm Robert Trogdon.
2: This is a podcast devoted to the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald.
0: Quickly as you can, snatch the pebble from my hand. When you can take the pebble from my hand, it will be time for you to
2: leave. And our episode today is Robert's favorite story in the whole Fitzgerald
1: canon? Ah, yes, The Four Fists.
2: The Four Fists. It sounds like it should be a martial arts movie from 1973 starring Bruce Lee,
1: but it is not. Uh, No, it is the gripping tale of one Samuel Meredith, whose life is changed and course-corrected by four timely hits to his face.
2: This is a very masochistic story, and in that, it argues that we would all benefit in moments of ethical weakness from getting punched in the mouth. And uh, in that regard, it is a odd little story. I would say it is one of the most universally derided stories or negatively spoken of stories that Fitzgerald ever wrote for. Oh, very weird reason. It probably would be among those bulk of stories that we never read or never talk about had not Fitzgerald included it in his first story collection, Flappers and Philosophers, where it really seems a little out of place. I mean, Robert, I'm looking here at the contents of Flappers and Philosophers. The Four Fists is the final story. And we tend to think in story collections of ending with the big ones like Big Two-Hearted River and uh, Hemingway's In Our Time. But The Four Fists is an anomaly. I'm looking at The Offshore Pirate, The Ice Palace, Head and Shoulders, Bernice Bob's her hair. Then we have some that are a little lesser known, like Benediction and Dalrymple Goes Wrong. But then we have The Four Fists. And really, it pairs up with only one story in the collection, which is called The Cut Glass Bowl, and those two stories have something in common. What is it, Robert?
1: They were two of the very few stories that Fitzgerald published in Scribner's magazine, the magazine that his publisher, Charles Scribner's sons, issued since the latter part of the 19th century.
2: I would say, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, at least at this moment in 1920, I would say that Scribner's magazine is maybe even a little more conservative in its taste than the Saturday Evening Post, which would become Fitzgerald's main outlet.
1: Oh, much, much more so. Call it a general interest magazine in that you would have some fiction, not a lot, and then essays on art, essays on business, essays on history. In this particular issue, I think there's the lead article is on Theodore Roosevelt's correspondence with writers and other artists.
2: The editor at the time, whose name was Robert Bridges, a studiously Victorian character, I would say, uh, but he was a good friend of Roosevelt. So he sort of pushed a Roosevelt agenda in there. I mean, Scribner's magazine had big names in it from the previous generation. They published Edith Wharton, for example, and Henry James was in there, but In terms of its flavor, I don't think there's any way in which we could call it modern. Although as we enter the 1920s and tastes change, it had to get a little more modern. And eventually it did publish people like uh, Cable Oil and Sherwood Anderson, Langston Hughes. Maybe the most famous thing it ever published was something you've studied, which is it serialized uh, Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. And what happened when it did that?
1: Most of the references to Catherine Barclay's pregnancy. See, magically disappear from the serialization. <laughs> I mean, tellingly, they also desired that Hemingway cut the obscene language that he used, but then so did the book so did the book publisher when, uh, Max Perkins got his hands on it. Yeah. But the funny thing is it's, it's mainly the, the, any reference to Catherine Barkley being pregnant, that get cut. Well,
2: and even though they
1: boulderized it,
2: one of the issues in which Farewell to Arms appeared was banned in Boston in 1929. Yeah. That's the
1: second installment, uh, the second uh, installment. Uh, and that is, uh, when Catherine and Frederick Henry are reunited in the hospital in Milan at, book two of uh, a farewell to arms.
2: right. So it's odd that in the decade of Ulysses that Scribners would even get banned, but it gives some idea of how even in the late 20s the vice squads were out there keeping an eye on the periodical industry.
1: Well you have a, you have all of these magazines that are offshoots of published pub, publishing houses. So you have like the various Harper titles. From Harper and Brothers, you have Atlantic, which is associated with Houghton Mifflin and others, and they are all things to all people. Uh, un- unlike, say, the Saturday Evening Post, which is predominantly fiction and, and lighter and. In sort of light humor pieces, or something like the Nation, which is like total politics and you know uh, current affairs.
2: It's interesting because Scribner's there was really no division within Scribner's, if I'm right, between the magazine and the publishing house. I mean, Bridges at one point typed up a list of typos in this side of paradise for the house to correct, and I think he and the previous editor, which I think was Bridgman, uh, Bridgman uh, Burlingame, Burlingame. He was one of the early voices that tried to persuade Charles Scribner's not to publish This Side of Paradise. And that was something completely different. So here's a funny story about Robert Bridges. In 1922, Burton Rasco, who we talked about in our very first episode, who was a New York gossip columnist, ran an article that said that during a meeting, Fitzgerald had leaned over and yanked six gray hairs from Bridges Beard, thereby dramatizing the generational divide between the young literary modernists and the old Victorian fogies that were being overtaken. Bridges actually outlived Fitzgerald by a year. Um, where would you say Scribner's was in terms of being a popular magazine?
1: It's dead in the middle. I mean, it's nowhere near as popular as Saturday Evening Post or even, you know, something along the lines of college humor as far as like ma- mainstream popularity. But it's it's a step above the pulps. You know, you almost liken it to, say, uh Time or uh, Newsweek uh, with with some fiction. Right. If you
2: look at subscriber numbers, Metropolitan Magazine, which Fitzgerald would switch to very shortly to serialize The Beautiful and Damned and publish a handful of stories, most notably Winter Dreams, they were selling maybe 300,000 copies an issue which is, you know, it's not Saturday evening post numbers, but that's a pretty broad mass market magazine. But around this time, Scribner's would only have about 70,000 subscribers. So it was considered kind of high culture, a little elitist. It was not a mass market magazine by any means.
1: And and Fitzgerald only got $150 for the story. Exactly. This was way down from what even
2: entry level Saturday Evening Post was earning. I guess my question would be, I have two questions then for you, Robert. A, why did he write this story? What do you think he was trying to do? And then B, why did he place it with Scribner's as opposed to Saturday Evening Post?
1: Because it could have run in Saturday Evening Post. It could have, but he's still filling out the market. Isn't Head and Shoulders the first Saturday Evening Posters?
2: Yeah, that's the first one. And that would be in February. So, okay, and then in May, he does all the flapper stories in the post. Right. So in a weird way, it almost seems like this is a kind of different type of Fitzgerald that he's giving to another audience, I would say.
1: But it's composed before all of those stories, right? right? The the composition, Brockley, dates May 1919 before any of those stories were read. That's really interesting
2: because what that says is that he was writing this story while he was still in New York, still not really having found his voice yet. We've talked before when we did Porcelain and Pink a few weeks ago that in the spring of nineteen 19- He was desperately trying to sell short stories, and the only thing he could place would be these little slivery, not very substantial types of modern jazz stories.
1: It's almost cotton candy of a story. Yeah,
2: exactly. They had a modern sensibility. This story never, ever would have run in the smart
1: set. No, it's too moralistic for H.L. Mencken. Yeah.
2: So Fitzgerald would publish frivolous type pieces in the smart set. That doesn't mean that those stories were bad. They usually had some element to them that made them inappropriate for larger, more conservative magazines. For example, Dollar Rimple Goes Wrong is a is a parody of American post-war patriotism, and Benediction is a pretty modern story about sex. So neither of those stories probably could have placed either in the Saturday Evening Post or in Scribner's. But Fitzgerald did have his agent send this around to various publishers. And there were a group of magazines, kind of like Century, The Nation, you mentioned a few others.
1: In June of 1920, when this was appearing in Scribner's, Mayday was running in the smart set. Oh, that's a
2: great point. So there's a lot of different Fitzgerald's out there in the marketplace right now. And I think that the fact that this was in the can for a year before it got into print shows us that during that apprentice period, he was really trying to figure out who he was. And in some ways, the Saturday Evening Post story stereotyped him as the flapper, Mm -hmm. you know, the flapper story writer. So I doubt that the Post would have necessarily been interested in this kind of moral, quote unquote, although Later on, when he came back to the post in 1922 and 1923, he would do stories that had this kind of moralized bent to them, fewer and fewer flapper stories and more and more kind of quick moralistic tales. But, you know, again, Scribner's by the time in the 30s that it was ending, it was publishing, for example, Faulkner's Dry September which is not by any means a conservative story. It's a pretty bold story about lynching. And then uh, Hemingway's maybe the most famous story it ever published was Hemingway's a clean, well-lighted place.
1: Right. And that, but that's one of the last stories that Hemingway placed with Scribner's. Right. And Hemingway, you know, he started with Scribner's and it was the primary American outlet for his stories Up until the 30s, and then he moved on to to Cosmopolitan.
2: So like Bridges would have accepted The Killers, which is a pretty gritty story in
1: 1927. The Killers, a uh, canary for one, and right. There's, there's another. There's one more because he published two two stories together.
2: Uh, Bridges retired, I think, in 1930, so he would not have published those later Hemingway stories. Probably was not involved in the Faulkner one. Mm-hmm. It's easy to see then, I guess, that if Scribner's is a much more conservative magazine, maybe than at least at the moment, than what's out there that's at least willing to take a little bit of chance on a more jazzy Fitzgerald type of voice. It's easy to see why this story is famous really for the one thing that it's known for. And that's the fact that in May 1920, as the issue was just hitting newsstands and was appearing in subscriber mailboxes. Fitzgerald received a fan letter about this story. And who wrote it, Robert?
1: John Greer Hibben, who was the president of Princeton University.
2: And you can find this letter in Matthew Brookley's collection called Correspondence. So this is May 27th, 1920. My dear Fitzgerald, going to use my victorian princeton president voice here (laughs) it has been in my mind some time to write you last evening i read your story in the current number of scribners entitled the four fists it is admirably written and i finished it with a feeling of such deep satisfaction that the long delayed purpose of writing you takes shape again today Let me say that I feel that in this last story of yours, you have shown not only a rare ability as an artist, but also your power to present a philosophy of life, which I wish every young man in our country would feel and appreciate. Your description of Samuel, Samuel in quotation marks, not ironic quotation marks attributing to him some instinct stronger than will, deeper than training, presents a picture of human nature at its best. This philosophy of the instinctive nobility of man, I hope, may be further developed in your writing and prove a help and inspiration to many who may not be aware of the real power concealed within them. And then the letter takes a long turn into a however, dot, 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 In which the president of Princeton proceeds to essentially rip apart the treatment of Princeton in this side of paradise. So what was the president, what was Hibbins' problem with this side of paradise, Robert?
1: I mean, it's not like they necessarily are the most studious group of individuals in in this side of paradise. (laughs) A lot of drinking, a lot of running up to New York to chase after chorus girls and things of that nature. Hibben goes on, from my undergraduate days, I've always had a belief in Princeton and in what the place could do in the making of strong, vigorous manhood. It would be an overwhelming grief to me in the midst of my work here and my love for Princeton's young men should I feel that we have nothing to offer but the outgrown symbols and shells of a past whose reality has long since disappeared.
2: Imagine for a moment that you're the president of the college that allowed uh, Animal House to film there. And you kind of go down in history as that's your contribution to academia is that your campus w- is featured in that pretty body movie. I think that's what Hibben may have felt like at that time. He was not at all happy with the depiction of Princeton life of either of its snobbiness or its modern fairly lax morality. And so again, that kind of illustrates the, the generational divide. What's interesting is Fitzgerald seems to have decided after that letter that he absolutely loathed the four fists, in part part because Hibben treated it so much. So here's Fitzgerald's reply on, on June 3rd, 1920. And keep in mind, this is only two months after he and Zelda are married. They're just getting ready to move to Westport, Connecticut, they might have just moved, but I think there's there's somewhere in between New York and Westport. But he says, I want to thank you very much for your letter. And to confess the honor of a letter from you outweighed my real regret that my book gave you concern. It was a book written with the bitterness of my discovery that I'd spent several years trying to fit in with a curriculum that is after all made for the average student. Of course, Fitzgerald flunked out of Princeton. He goes on to say, my view of life, President Hibben, is the view of Theodore Dreiser's and Joseph Conrad's that life is too strong and remorseless for the sons of men. Hold on, let me find some suitably rebellious music. Here we go. My idealism flickered out with Henry Strader's anti-club movement at Princeton. The Four Fists, the lightest of my stories to publish, was the first to be written. I wrote it in desperation one evening because I had a three-inch pile of rejection slips and it was financially necessary for me to give the magazine what they wanted. The appreciation it has received has amazed me. So he's basically telling Hibben, I only wrote it hoping to break into the market. It wasn't really me. I am more this side of paradise. And if you don't like it, you can go stuff it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the the letters of musing almost is like, I was too smart for Princeton. That's why I failed out. Yeah. And I think Fitzgerald's very wise in a way and understanding that American fiction is going the way of this side of paradise and not the way of the four fists.
2: We should note that Maxwell Perkins, his editor, the editor who fought for this side of paradise at Princeton, however, praised the four fists as one of Fitzgerald's strongest stories, which amazes me as well. But I guess the question still lingers. If he hated this story that much, Why did he include it as the last story in Flappers and Philosophers? Was he
1: just filling out the book?
2: Well, he had better stories. I mean, quote unquote, better stories. If your preference is for Flapper stories, he had a fun one that was not collected until after his death called Myra Meets His Family, right. which is a little too similar, even in alliteration, to Bernice Bob's hair. You could see why maybe he didn't want to reprint that one because he didn't want to get stuck in the mode of having to do f- flapper stories with that kind of jokey title. But I think that he also had available, however, The Camel's Back, which was one of his best stories and would be a featured one. In his next collection, Tales of the Jazz Age in 1922. Mm -hmm. And you made the point that I didn't think about in terms of the timeline, that he had an absolute masterpiece in print right at the same time as The Four Fists.
1: Right. Mayday is, I think, one of his great achievements in in short story or novellas or whatever you want to call it. In my opinion, it beats anything that's in Flappers and Philosophers.
2: Yeah, I would agree. Now, keep in mind, even though Flappers and Philosophers came out in September 1920, he was still shuffling around the contents of Flappers and Philosophers as late as May 1920. So he could have included May Day. And it is the kind of hefty, big story like James Joyce's The Dead, like Ernest Hemingway's Big Two-Hearted River, or Fathers and Sons that ends Hemingway's collection, uh, Winner Take Nothing. That is the thematic masterpiece that you would normally pick to end a uh, story collection. So, the only real explanation I can think of is that Fitzgerald was hedging his bets a little bit, in that he didn't want to be stereotyped as someone who wrote cute love stories about flappers. Mm -hmm. And so, he includes in this story collection a little racier stuff like benediction, but he also includes some fairly conventional, some of the types of stories that your your mom or your grandma could like. And the Four Fists is probably even better an example of that didactic story than the Cut Class Bowl.
1: Yeah. Breckley reports and Before Gatsby, and they had note to that, that he, he did not want it in the British edition of Flappers and Philosophers.
2: Right. But I think it did appear in there. It was too late to yank it.
1: Yeah. A lot lot of times what Scribner's would do was send their galley proofs to the British publisher. They would set that way unless they sold them, you know, actually sold them sheets, which they could do.
2: Or in some cases, didn't they make another set of the plates uh, and send them over there? Yes. So that's why editions, unlike the Beatles albums, you know, in the 60s where the American and British versions differed greatly, the short story collections tended not to.
1: Jim West points out that this is one of the reasons why Scribner's quite often use British spellings in, in their works was just to appeal to the British publishers.
2: Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's really interesting. There are a lot of British spellings in the original edition of uh, Flappers and Philosophers. Well, let's get into the story itself then and try to really tear it apart and decide what makes it a didactic story and what is the purpose of this type of moral fiction?
1: Well, the story, The Four Fists, as you would imagine from the title, is divided into four parts and it follows the life of Samuel Meredith, when he is in prep school, in college, just starting out in business, and then at the cusp of great success in business. And at each of these moments, his life is changed when somebody hauls off and hits him in the face.
2: And in each case, he is doing something that is less than noble. In the first instance, he's a young man. He's at Phillips Exeter Academy, And he's kind of considered, as Fitzgerald was when he went to boarding school, a sort of insufferable snob and a bit of a bully. And so the first time we see him, none of his classmates like him. So we're getting maybe a little bit of a glimpse of what Fitzgerald does much later on and much more in a nuanced way with the Basil stories where Fitzgerald is is recalling how he was often criticized for being snobby. But in this particular scene, he's very much disliked by his uh, roommate, Gilly Hood, and He's disliked because he has this sense of everything about him is superior, even though he's the one with the messy bed and he basically taunts Gilly long enough that Gilly hauls back and clocks him. So in each of these four incidents, what generally happens is the moment that he gets punched, there'll be a passage like this.
0: Gilly hauled off and hit him succinctly in the nose. Yeah, Gilly, show the big bully. Just let him touch you, he'll see. The group closed in on them, and for the first time in his life, Samuel realized the insuperable inconvenience of being passionately detested. He gazed around helplessly at the glowering, violently hostile faces. He towered ahead taller than his roommates, so if he hit back he'd be called a bully, and have half a dozen more fights on his hands within five minutes, yet if he didn't he was a coward. For a moment he stood there facing Gilly's blazing eyes, and then, with a sudden choking sound, he forced his way through the ring and rushed from the room. The month following bracketed the thirty most miserable days of his life. Every waking moment he was under the lashing tongues of his contemporaries, his habits and mannerisms became butts for intolerable witticism, and, of course, the sensitiveness of adolescence was a further thorn. He considered that he was a natural pariah, that the unpopularity at school would follow him through life. When he went home for the Christmas holidays he was so despondent that his father sent him to a nerve specialist. When he returned to Andover, he arranged to arrive late so that he could be alone in the bus during the drive from station to school. Of course, when he had learned to keep his mouth shut, everyone promptly forgot all about him.
2: So in each of these instances, there is a passage where the omniscient narrator jumps in and sums up the moral lesson for us. of uh, the ethical faults that uh, Samuel Meredith is displaying at this moment in time.
1: And the second, he is with a group of classmates on a tram, on a, a bus, and there's a workman there. It's completely full. Four girls get on, the three boys give their seats up, and one girl is left standing, and this poor workman remains seated, and he makes a point, being the snob that he is, to, to mention that there is a lady standing. And this guy is, who's been working hard all day still remains seated. They follow, they all get off at the same stop. He confronts the workman about like his lack of breeding and good manners. The assailant cries, I've been working all day. I'm tired as hell. And this is after he hits him, and then he Samuel realizes that snobbishness is is merely good breeding, grown dictatorial. So he learns empathy for the lower classes.
2: And then the third scene is maybe the raciest one. I mean, th- w- the, I remember the first time I read this after many years of reading about how this how Fitzgerald hated this story and how didactic it was, and it sort of struck me that it is pushing the envelope just a little, maybe a little discreetly, because what it suggests is as a young man, some old Meredith has, if not an extramarital affair with a woman, at least a sort of extramarital flirtation. Now he's single, but this young woman, Marjorie, that he encounters is married to a lowly bank clerk.
1: Right. As Meredith is working, he has a one diversion, women there were half a dozen, two or three debutantes, an actress, in a minor way, a grass widow, and a sentimental little brunette who was married and lived in a little house in Jersey City. So he's, he's a bit of a womanizer, but it seems fairly innocent. By the way, I just have to point out, I love the term grass widow. It's one of my, one of my favorite terms.
2: <laughs> I edited for Oxford World Classics, the edition of Flappers and Philosophers, and that was one of the fun annotations to kind of chase down and try to explain. So <laughs> uh, I think one of the interesting things about this particular scene is it it points to maybe one of the themes that did often come up in late Victorian literature, which was the upper middle class, upper class exploitation of working class women. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the assumption that upwardly mobile men had every right to have a mistress and usually a mistress of the lower ranks. So he touches on that just a little bit. But it's also, I think, a story that you can tweak it a little bit and think about the fact that it's also being written at a time when Zelda had dumped Scott. In the spring of 1919. And he was very anxious about the fact that he could not control the way that she was seeing other men before they got engaged. So there's maybe a little identification in there on Fitzgerald's part with the poor husband Mm -hmm. who hauls back and punches Samuel. And again, we get this very didactic penultimate paragraph. In that second, as Samuel slumped to the ground, it flashed upon him that he had been hit like that twice before. And simultaneously, the incident altered like a dream. He felt suddenly awake. Mechanically, he sprang to his feet and squared off. The man was waiting, fists up a yard away. But Samuel knew that though physically he had him by several inches and many pounds, he wouldn't hit him the situation had miraculously and entirely changed a moment before samuel had seemed to himself heroic now he seemed the cad the outsider and marjorie's husband silhouetted against the glass lights of the little house the eternal heroic figure the defender of his home so fitzgerald's illustrating the lesson there that you never want to be the third person in a in an adulterous situation he realizes how ethically wrong that end not that he held himself to that standard later on in life.
1: Well, the narrator undercuts him because it's the narrator doesn't say that he was in love with Marjorie, right? Right. That he thought he was in love with Marjorie. Yeah. Which is, which is one of the nicer touches in this story about the, the psychology and that he fools himself.
2: I do think that the characterizations here are maybe a little deeper than your typical, didactic story. Even though Fitzgerald does employ an omniscient, intrusive narrator, he is using free and direct discourse, let's say, to dramatize Samuel's thoughts. And I think that helps us identify with Samuel Mm -hmm. a little bit more. We should note that the story begins very typically the way that Fitzgerald would begin his quote unquote commercial stories in the early 20s with this very chatty, glib narrator who says something like, at the present time, no one I know has the slightest desire to hit Samuel Meredith, which is a good lead, but it's not a lead that in writing a fiction story, unless your narrator was one of the characters you would probably start out with. And this is the type of, I think, narrative voice that caused H.L. Mencken, when he was reviewing Flappers and Philosophers in 1920, to basically say that Fitzgerald had had a choice. He could go along and be sort of rebellious in the way this side of paradise was, or he could go the way that these previous generations magazine moralists were and just beat to death his own point and not allow readers to get it themselves.
1: Right. And when Fitzgerald sent Meekin a copy, he notated that this was one of the trash stories in there, as well as Bernice Brobs her hair and Head and Shoulders.
2: Neither of which I would say are trash stories. I mean, no, it's sort of interesting that especially Bernice her hair, which by any count, I think counts as one of his most famous and popular stories. So it just gives you an idea again of how little he maybe estimated his own work. I think there was always a little defensive self-deprecation with both Mencken and Hemingway. You know, in that letter to Hibben, when he's talking about claiming that he's now a devotee of Frank Norris and Dreiser, that's really the influence of Mencken shining through there. And we should note there is a, another Fitzgerald story yes. from right around the same time called The Smilers, which is basically the four fists with smiles instead of fists. So it wasn't as if he mm-hmm. uh, abandoned this type of didactic story, even though he hated it. It just he found a market for it. And when he needed quick money after the four fists, that would be one of the types of stories that he might turn to.
1: We still got the fourth part.
2: Yeah. And we were talking beforehand. And uh, let me throw this out there. I think this has the makings of a good story if it only had the fourth part and you did not call it the four fists. If you, again, I can't get over how the four fists, I keep waiting for, you know, the <laughs> the, the fight scene. Uh,
1: I'm, I'm thinking about a party with Fitzgerald, Hemingway, and Faulkner <laughs> called the four fists.
2: Well, that would, yeah, that would. That would not last them long. That would be a more <laughs> a more honest story. One of the things we were joking about is that we were trying to come up with how many fight scenes in Fitzgerald there are. And we've got four punches here, but there are other instances, maybe most famously in Tender is the Night, when Dick Diver punches an Italian policeman and ends up arrested. And that's a turning point in his downward spiral.
1: Yeah, that ends book two. It's right before book three occurs. Right. Uh, That's a violent novel, though, in so many ways.
2: It is. And Fitzgerald talks about in an essay that was posthumously published that he was not a good fighter, but when drunk, he often got near to fighting. There was the incident in 1923 where he was very lucky. He got into a fight with a cop outside of West Webster Hall in New York. And that landed him in the newspapers with a pretty funny headline. It was Fitzgerald Knox officer, this side of paradise. But uh, And you can see that in the scrapbooks that are online from Princeton. I think there's some projection going on in this story a little bit. It's almost as if he wishes he could be these guys that would punch whoever the other person was that he was uh, Mm -hmm. feeling put upon by. And in Tender as a Knight's case, I think that flips around a little bit to where it's just a, a demonstration of how drunk men like to get into fights. Right. So this fourth section, what do you think of it? Could it have made a good story on its own?
1: Could, but I almost think it's a Horatio Alger, sort of like a miraculous.
2: Change of heart types of story.
1: Well, the thing about it is that Samuel, now married, is in business with this, this tycoon of industry, Carhartt, who sends him to Texas to work with one of, his, one of his associates on securing some oil leases, some properties. They're buying out all of these ranches, and he's confronted by this man named McIntyre who doesn't want to sell, has no alternative but to sell. You know, it's all inside the law. And then McIntyre hits him and Meredith calls off the deal. The associate in Texas, Hamill, is upset, but Carhart, who knew absolutely nothing about Hamill's dealings, or that's the implication, is thrilled because this is, while legal is not necessarily moral, and Meredith is rewarded. And it, it's completely different because nothing Meredith is doing in this story, he's in the wrong in the other three sections. Yeah. In this instance, he's just sort of the agent of these other men, but it is legal and he is just following orders. Although that is no defense against doing something uh, completely bad. It could be, possibly work i mean if you know the the whole conflict between meredith and the ranchers was like extended a little bit further out but it, it is it does have sort of like a sort of a miraculous oh he was actually doing the right thing because carhartt knew nothing about the deal
2: yeah and he's rewarded for being a good person at the end I would suggest to you that we have seen this plot over and over again in TV melodramas, you know, or maybe movie melodramas. Even if you think of like the, uh, oh, what's that guy that always does the romance novels? Oh,
1: uh, Nicholas Sparks.
2: Nicholas Sparks. Yeah. Imagine a Nicholas Sparks novel. Now there's no romance in this particular story, but imagine a Nicholas Sparks novel where the subplot is this young city boy who comes to Texas to learn about business in Texas and ranching, falls in love with the daughter of the rancher, McIntyre. And it turns out that he's trying to buy the father's farm and the father turns around and gives him this lecture. And I mean, this is so sort of corny. But it's you know it's very rousing in a Kevin Kevin Costner kind of way I guess uh, where <laughs> <This> where McEnt- <laughs>
1: it's like the plot of Yellowstone is that what you yeah suggesting? exactly
2: <laughs> well maybe not that racy
1: but uh, maybe not no
2: but you could see it as a uh, what was that channel TBS or where they used to do kind of the family movies. And uh, McIntyre tells him to his face, I reckon this rotten old devil referring to Carhartt had to have another million. I reckon we're just a few of the poor beggars he's blotted out to buy a a couple more carriages or something. I built a house out there when I was 17 with these two hands. I took a wife. 40 summers I've seen the sun come over the mountains and drop down red as blood in the evening. My boy was born there and he died there. Then the wife and I uh, and I lived there alone and sort of tried to have a home. After all, not a real home because the boy always seemed to c- come close somehow. And we expected a lot of nights to see him running up the path to supper. It's opposing this myth of American business as carnivorous, as uh, as an omnivore. It's eating up this independent struggle that we are all supposed to have, uh, the pleasure of working with our hands, the pleasure of farming for ourselves. And so it's that kind of story that we love to root for about uh, opposing a corporate takeover. And again, if this were a contemporary movie, he would get punched in the face, change his conscience, and it would end with him winning the rancher's daughter. So I think it's an entirely conventional
1: plot. I think you and I could adapt this and we put in a Christmas theme and we can sell it to the Hallmark Channel for next year. That is exactly
2: the venue that I was trying to think of when I said TBS. I knew that was not the right channel, mm-hmm. but you're exactly right. It is, it is a Hallmark Channel type of plot without the romance where I, it says to us, we have these instinctual values that get corrupted by our greed or... By our loyalty to a corporation.
1: And, and just lo- loads and loads of sentimentality. And show yes. that the small town life is, is great. Farming life is great. Yeah. Let me tell you, I grew up on a farm. There is nothing great about farming life.
2: <laughs> it is a lot of drudgery. It is a
1: ton of drudgery.
2: I remember spending many a summer on my grandparents' farm, and my main job was shoveling manure, which was maybe the one job I was ever worthy of.
1: Oh, you you had it easy. You had a shovel to move the manure. (laughs) I just had my hands.
2: (laughs) Well, so this story, I think, is on the one hand, I don't think it deserves the reputation has as something that Fitzgerald just absolutely hated. I think if. If uh, the president of Princeton had never said he liked it, I think this story might have drifted off into obscurity.
1: Right, I think I think that's part of it. You, you look at the correspondence; Fitzgerald's very happy to sell it if anybody had wanted to buy it for the movies. Sure, I mean it's no point in you know turning your nose up at ready cash, but yeah, uh, I think you know that he it never wanted it to be like in the omnibus collection uh, that he proposed, right. Um, or anything of of that nature, but I think you're right. I think that when the establishment, when the man said that he liked it, Fitzgerald rebelliousness rose up.
2: So I would say that if you were going to give this uh, a rating, what would you give it? I would give it, I would give it how many, I give it
1: three Zeldas. I mean, it's, it's down there. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to imagine I would know, we probably get to get to a story that I would give like two or under under I mean, I figure I can't write this, you know. I I you know, and so um, <laughs> there are certain things that I recognize as sort of Fitzgerald DN in it, but it's not something that I would immediately put into the top 75% of Fitzgerald's short stories.
2: There's no irony in it. I would, I would maybe go for four stars. Um, yep. It's competent and it fits in with the venue in Scribner's magazine in the same way that I, I'm not a big connoisseur of Hallmark movies because I find them a little cookie cutter. Right. I find this one a little cookie cutter. I like the fact that Fitzgerald sets a, at least this last part in San Antonio. Imagine for a moment Fitzgerald doing a darker piece in Cormac McCarthy country it'd be an interesting premise there
1: it's 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 also an example of Fitzgerald's weird bad geography because you, San Antonio is yeah. a lot and <laughs> the confrontation with McIntyre takes place in New Mexico right right you can drive all night and never leave Texas as the song says and <laughs>
2: Yeah, he was awful with geography. I mean, the the story that always cracks me up is when he's planning out the last tycoon, and he's going to have his hero Monroe Starr die in a plane crash, and he's going to have it happen in the part of the Rockies that stretch into Oklahoma. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's just he couldn't make it in the spelling bee or in the geography bee. That's 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 why they make maps, you know. But- <laughs> All right. The
2: other thing we do in every episode is we draw out the next story we're going to do. So let me reach down into the magic fish bowl and pull one out. And oh, OK, well, we're going to do the the granddaddy of all Fitzgerald, the most famous one. We're going to do Babylon Revisited. Oh,
1: good, 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 good. OK, So
2: we, we're going from the ridiculous to the sublime
1: very much so all right well
2: thank you very much robert and uh try not to go out and get punched in the face
1: uh it's only me and the wife here and uh, it's only a matter of time before she punches me in the face
2: (laughs) all right well we will see you on our next episode then
1: Uh, take care everybody
0: You've been making your brags around
2: town that you've been loving my man But the man I love when he picks up trash, he puts it in a garbage can And that's what you look like to me, and what I see is a pity You better close your face and stay out of my way if you don't want to go to Fist City You better detour around my town. Cause I'll grab you by-